Uh, good evening to you all. Uh, my name's Saab. I'm a, a curate over at uh, St. Nick's Church uh, in Thames Ditton. And it's my privilege to, to be with you this evening and uh, uh, kick off this sermon series uh, looking at uh, the life of David. Uh, as we've been told, one of a, a favorite character for Richard uh, in the Bible. Um, and so we're looking through this sermon series, uh, charting the highs and the lows uh, of David's life. Um, and he was described as a man after God's heart. So if you've got your Bibles to hand, it'd be really helpful uh, as we kick off if you could uh, open them up to page uh, 287 uh, that has our reading on it. And tonight we're really going to meditate largely on one verse and actually the back half of verse 7. But the Lord looks at the heart. And we're going to kick off, uh, look at three things. Firstly, what is it that God looks for uh, when he looks at his people? Uh, Secondly, uh, how is our heart shaped by culture. And it's really important for us to kind of get our minds around that because it has a profound impact upon our third point, which is how can we shape our hearts so that they are hearts that search after God. Okay. So uh, if you've got your Bibles open, take a look uh, at uh, chapter 16. Uh, But just to set a bit of context, uh, the prophet Samuel uh, has uh, been with Saul, the previous king, And things have not gone well with Saul. If you've got your Bibles open on the bottom of page 286, um, Saul is rejected and Samuel says to Saul, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And hot on the rejection of Saul, he's now been sent off to Bethlehem to see Jesse and his sons. And in verse 2, Samuel's still a little bit worried about the prospect of going uh, because Saul might hear about it and cause him some grief. So Samuel says, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and he will kill me. But he presses on being a uh, wise and good prophet and he arrives at Jesse's place uh, to have the boys uh, paraded in front of him. And verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw uh, Eliab. Now, I want you just to picture this in your mind's eye. You might need a bit of soft focus uh, when you do this. Um, Eliab uh, rocks up in his convertible Bentley, and he wafts into the room uh, where Samuel is. And he's been at the Vidal Sassoon Academy. His hair and his beard are beautifully trimmed with just the right amount of product. He's got pearly white teeth, a winning smile. Uh, He's tall. He's got the sort of body that you might see on those young chaps on Love Island. Uh, He's dressed from, uh, his clothing is from um, Savile Row. He's got Jimmy Choo's on his feet, Gucci round his waist, and he has a Rolex on his wrist. He looks every part a million dollars. And Samuel is absolutely convinced he has bought Eliab's PR. And he says, surely... The Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. It's kind of a mic drop moment, isn't it? Boom, my work here is done. But the Lord says, do not consider his appearance or his height. I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So unperturbed, he presses on. Abinadab is uh, shown, but not him. Shamar shown, but not him. All the sons are paraded, and you can almost hear the exasperation, can't you, uh, in Samuel's voice at the end of verse, uh, verse uh, 11. 
are these all the sons you have? Have I come here and have I got it wrong? Is it the case that, this, that I've come to the wrong place? And then Jesse says, no, there is still the youngest. He's out tending his sheep. The least impressive of my sons, the guy that's out there looking after the sheep because I don't think I can trust him with anything more. Yeah, there's still him. Would you like me to show you him? And he says, yes. And as he appears, a boy, probably diminutive and unimpressive to look at, and the Lord says in verse 12, rise and anoint him, he is the one. He's the complete contrast, isn't he, to suave Eliab at the start. And he's anointed and he goes on. So verse 7b is kind of the key verse. God looks at the heart, man looks at the exterior. The heart, if you like, is, is like the control center. It's not kind of the biological pump. It's the control center. It's the seat of who we are, the very core of our being, where love and knowledge all reside. Our character uh, is in that place. And God says that's the thing that matters, not the externals, but the character, the godly character of the man. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we kind of know that and we've read the Bible and we know the story of uh, David. Uh, It's both uh, remarkable and tragic, isn't it? Uh, That it's marked by some times of incredible closeness uh, to God and at times when he acted unimaginably badly. We see the closeness in the Psalms, uh, in particular when he writes about how his heart longs and yearns for God and then He gets somebody to commit murder for him, and there's a a period of adultery as well. But at the end of his life, if you go to 1 Chronicles, the end of 1 Chronicles, you see David's final prayer. And in the words there are just, fill your heart. He understands who God is. He understands who he is in God. It's remarkable. And as we work our way through this series, I'm sure we're going to keep coming back to this notion of who, it is, who, it's, who God is and what it means that he looks at the heart. And when we read about the life of David, his ups and downs, what does that mean for us today when we say that God looks at the heart? Now, when the people of Israel read this, that God looks at the heart, that was entirely obvious to them. They knew exactly what was meant by that. But in the last 2,000 years, things have changed. We've got a very different take on what that means. And it's really important for us to kind of get our arms around that. So I want to just spend a little bit of time kind of unpacking what culture, uh, how culture has shaped uh, our hearts. Now, Charles Taylor, he's a um, modern-day philosopher, I guess. Uh, He's written a a small book called Sources of the Self, uh, and he has mapped over history, over different geographies, uh, how our hearts have been changed. Now, he says that initially, thousands of years ago, across all cultures, all places, uh, the key factor defining our hearts, the heart of the people, was honor. It was honor through courage. Uh, Men showed this by going out to battle and being brave. Uh, They had a big story, their nation, and they were out to defend it. Women uh, had honor through courage, through childbirth. Childbirth was incredibly dangerous, uh, and many women died uh, giving birth. And they, too, had a big picture, again, their nation, uh, and providing people who could work the land and men who would be able to defend the borders. And throughout all of this, he says that there was a moral paradigm that existed outside the person. There was a moral good 
that was outside the person, and it was an objective moral good. And you were validated by the people in your community, the people who were around you. Your community decided if you were worthy. And for Christians, this was made abundantly clear when John wrote in uh, his gospel in John 1. He said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And it was the Word who came and dwelt with us. God's undeniable, objective truth incarnate living amongst his people. This transcendent moral truth outside of us came to live with us. And the call for Christians is to sublimate our lives to that moral truth that exists outside of us. So that's where we used to be, a moral order that was objective, that was outside of us. And we were validated by the things that happened outside. And all of that started to change about 400 years ago. Uh, Descartes uh, and Rousseau in the 18th century, they started to question the validity of having objective moral truths that were outside you. And they started to suggest, actually, do you know what? You don't really have moral truths or any sort of truth actually outside you. All truth is found in here. It's internal. It's not revealed. It's discovered. And the seeds of this were sown spectacularly about 80 years ago in one of the, actually, in the most watched film in all history. I would wager that almost everybody in this room has seen this film. Uh, UNESCO, we'll come back to what that film is in a moment, uh, UNESCO um, have something called a World Register. I don't know if you've come across this World Register. Uh, They put together, uh, having trawled through all of human history, they put together or picked out key things that uh, are so significant to the development of humanity into this register for safekeeping. So things like... um, The uh, Declaration of Independence in the US uh, is in there. And there are only a very small number of films, and this film has made it into that register. Does anybody know what that film that's so so changed the paradigm of our world is? Uh, About 80 years ago, 1939, it uh, it was released. The Wizard of Oz... Yeah, I'm sure, yeah, you've all probably seen that, haven't you? And it's really interesting because it's four social misfits on their journey to the Emerald City. And they seek things that they need from the great wizard. The great wizard here is God. Uh, And they go there and hope that God will make them the person they want to be. But the story in The Wizard of Oz is, you know, the, the wizard is defrocked. He's not really a wizard. He's just a bloke. And actually, the things that you want... They're not given to you by somebody else. They're inside you. Yeah, the lion says, I want to be courageous. And the man who's been operating the lever says, well, it's already inside you. Yeah, the, the scarecrow wants smarts. And before you know it, he's reciting Pythagoras' theorem, isn't he? And the heart is given to you. It's already inside the tin man. And that film, 80 years ago, has set in train an enormous change in our, in, in our culture which has affected profoundly our hearts. How? Well, two things I think have changed. Firstly is self-importance, individual self-importance, and secondly is individual determination. So self-importance. There was a Gallup poll conducted in 1950 uh, that uh, polled uh, secondary, uh, secondary school students. I don't know what years that is. 
12 and that sort of age, yeah. Um, and the question was, do you consider yourself to be an important person? Do you consider yourself to be an important person? In 1950, 12% of people said that they thought themselves to be important people. 2005, 80%. 8, 0%. 80% thought they were very important people. That's a huge, huge rise in self-esteem. And that's really important, as Charles Taylor points out, because he says that if, you're in, if you think you're important, yeah, then you can be trusted. If you're important, you can be trusted by yourself. And there's this culture of authenticity. Yet the mindset's based on this romantic notion that deep down inside us, in our core, yeah, that we are innately good, we're innately trustworthy. That inside of us, if you like, there's a golden figure, a perfect us. The more important that we think we are, the bigger that figure is. And there's no doubt there's a huge increase, isn't there, in narcissism in our society. And authenticity actually demands that you make the rules for your own life. You decide what's right and what's wrong. Truth is no longer external, but truth has become internal. You decide. You decide what makes you happy, and that's the truth for you. Second thing that's happened is self-determination. Now, we've been bombarded by a gospel of self-trust by culture. Uh, Disney and Pixar are constantly telling us and our children uh, how wonderful they are and that they can be whatever they want to be, no matter what. You can find the truth inside you, no matter what. I don't know, has anybody here seen the film Frozen? Yeah, yeah, haven't we all? Yeah. Now, Elsa encapsulates uh, self-determination beautifully. Yep. Elsa sings that wonderful song, doesn't she, Let It Go?, and there's a great catchphrase in there. She says, I won't sing it because I can't. It says, time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And she became the person that she wanted to be. And the crazy thing is, people died. People died as she became herself. And Elsa's caught in this amazing story of fear and shame that's ultimately solved by living the truth that she discovers inside herself. She validates herself. The world doesn't validate her. And remarkably in the story, there's no external moral standard or truth. Truth is just discovered inside. And as long as you're happy, that's it, that's true. And by the time our children graduate from university age 20, 21, they have bought this hook, line, and sinker. And I, I know that you're all a really, really well-educated bunch of people, but uh, I don't know wonder, how many of you have seen this book? Oh, the places you will go. Number five in the New York Times bestseller list. Okay? This, this book is given as a graduation present to so many people. And I don't know, it's a story about, uh, well, you. Oh, the places you will go. Congratulations, today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. You have brains in your head and, your feet in, and have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own and you'll know where to go. And you 
are the guy who will decide where to go. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you'll top all the rest. On and on you will hike, and I know you'll hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. And will you succeed? Yes, you will indeed. 98 and three quarters percent guaranteed. Yeah? In this small book, the word you appears 90 times. 90 times. So what's the result of this? I mean, we start with uh, this sense of um, the truth is outside you, that it's objective, um, and it's, uh, you're validated by your community to a place where now culture is based on the view that their truth is no longer objective and outside us. Truth is revealed and it's inside us. Sorry, it's discovered inside us. It's validated what we think in our hearts and absolutely not by anything external. We decide what's right, and we decide what's wrong. And we decide that, each one, in our own hearts. The ultimate measure, the ultimate measure of truth is what makes me happy. My personal, momentary happiness is the ultimate measure to which everything else must bend. Ideas of obligation, commitment, sacrificial love, that all sits underneath that idea of individual happiness. Anything that we see, we can desire, and we can claim it as good, says the culture. We individually can decide what's good. And oftentimes, what we want is what makes us look good in the eyes of others. We want to look good in their eyes. And as God said to Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance. Now, culture says that we can do anything, and if it feels good to us and makes us happy, we can say that it's right. We decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. And that is a huge change in the way that we think about ourselves and truth. And it's happened phenomenally fast. Inside 100 years, we've seen that change take place. And that change is really, really discombobulating. Uh, in his book, uh, The Gagging of God, uh, this is what uh, Carson writes. He says, Our compass has lost its North Pole and jerks uncontrollably and arbitrarily in any and every direction. We've set our hearts free from the looming reality of objective truth and found ourselves lost in moral disarray, mired in cultural and individual purposelessness. We have lost our way. And now, you know, you may sit here and say, yeah, you know, culture, that's, yeah, what do you expect? You know, if only they had the gospel, then maybe they wouldn't be like that way. But the danger is that what happens in the world bleeds into what happens here in this place. What happens out there shapes our hearts too. Uh, in his piece, uh, The Fabric of Theology, uh, Lint uh, writes this. He says, the fascination with the self gives rise to the new focus for theology for modern evangelicals. Yep. And that is unhappiness. 
How can there be a God if we're not happy all the time? Evil has become a private emotion. And the new gospel is that God offers to heal us of that privatized hell. The church exists to make people feel comfortable and happy. This is simply hedonism baptized with Christian rhetoric. This is simply hedonism baptized with Christian rhetoric. What are we going to do? So here's a little diagnostic for us. How can we know in here, in this place, yeah, whether we've actually been shaped by culture or not? Yeah? So here's a, here's a little diagnostic. Uh, most of the things on this list uh, are here because um, they came out of here. So uh, three different areas, word, witness, uh, and worship. Word. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you a little scenario and just you know, ask yourself uh, the question whether, whether, you, whether it resonates uh, with you. So do you ever find yourself saying any of the following things? Uh, when you come across a piece of scripture, for instance, that you find uh, odd uh, or massively countercultural or really demanding, do any of these things pop into your mind? I think that might have been true for the people of the Old Testament or the New Testament, but there's no way that that can be relevant to us today. Or, I'm not sure I agree with that bit of scripture. I like to think of God as being more... Dot, dot, dot. The biblical teaching on financial giving, well, that's just not possible with house prices so high in Surrey. You can take the Bible... You can't take the Bible to be literally the word of God in Surrey in the 21st century. That's so narrow-minded. What about uh, in worship when we gather together on a Sunday? Uh, do you ever find yourself thinking, oh no, not that song. That song does nothing for me. Hmm? Or what about, I, I wish the sermon was more challenging, or I wish the sermon was less challenging. Or why do the service leaders not do a proper confession or use old wording or modern wording or whatever it seems to be that grates with the leader that day? What about in uh, our witness in the world? Uh, do you find yourself saying any of these? Uh, I'm not going to invite my neighbor slash friend slash work colleague to Alpha because Christianity is just one path to God. I have my truth and they have yours. And as long as they're happy, that's okay. Or what about... Why do I have to speak to people about Jesus? I believe religion is a private matter. Now, if any of these things are things that we've thought, then we've accidentally absorbed the culture. We've denied the objective truths that God has revealed, and we're using our happiness as the key validator. The thing that determines what is right or wrong has become our heart, and not what God has revealed about who he is. So what do we do about that? Um, God tells Samuel in verse 7 of our reading that God looks at the heart. So how do we cultivate a godly heart with godly character? A godly heart that will please our Father in heaven. Let me give you four principles and four practices. Firstly, recapture that meta-narrative of where we stand in that story recapture that big picture that God has revealed in Scripture, that God has created all things and he has created us to be in a relationship with him. 
It's about him and his picture. So start to uh, expunge or drive out the narrative that Rousseau and the Wizard of Oz have placed in our hearts. Uh, Secondly, recapture a right understanding of what's inside us. Our culture tells us that... um, you know, that everything inside of us is good, that there's this uh, sense of authenticity that we need to be good to ourselves because we can trust ourselves. Jesus had a very different take on that. He says in Mark 7, uh, 20, he says, uh, he went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, Malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Jesus tells us the model of authenticity is a lie. If we look deep inside us and we're honest about when we look inside our hearts, we will not see a golden figure. We might see a golden calf, but we won't see a golden figure. So see first, so secondly, see what's really in your core. Thirdly, uh, remind yourself of who has made the promises that have been made to us. Yeah, it's God himself that has made those promises. Promises of redemption, of ransom, of reconciliation. Promises of life eternal, living face to face with God. Remember those promises. Claim those promises and inhabit those promises And cultivate a heart of praising and rejoicing. Fourth principle. uh, Seek again the heart of the one who sent his son for us. Yeah, we're thinking about hearts. So seek the heart of the one who sent his son. And how do we do that? Those are great principles, but how do we do those things? Let me just briefly talk about four spiritual disciplines. Rest, reflect, scripture and silence. Rest and reflect. Stop. Unplug yourself from the matrix. Do this daily, do this weekly, do this monthly, and make a point of doing it annually. Just stop. Unplug. Rest. Take time out to be with God with no agenda. Just stop and be with him. And when you stop, reflect. Ask yourself, how is my heart developing? Am I growing in peace, in patience, in goodness, in loving service of others? Am I growing in a thirst for the knowledge of God? Or am I being shaped by the world? If you're not being shaped by Jesus, then you are being shaped by the world. It's binary. If it's not Jesus, it's the world. Scripture and silence. Remind yourselves of the big picture. Be in God's word. Remember that we are creatures that God has created and he loves us. And it's God who's the creator. Remember that we've been made for a worshipping relationship with the Father. Search his heart in Scripture. And read Scripture daily. Wait in silence. Hear him speak to you. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, crumbs, seems too much. Where am I going to get the power to do that? Where am I going to get the power to do that? And the answer is in verse 13 of our reading. I don't know if you spotted that. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. The Spirit of the Lord 
came upon David in power. You see, the trouble with our hearts is in their natural state, they are inwardly focused, they're selfish, they're hard. No amount of hard work on our part can change that. We can't, just by dint of kind of trying to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps, root out the things that are in our hearts. Yeah, we're spiritual, we're like magpies. Yeah, we, if we see something shiny, we'll go to it. And what we need to do is we need to find the biggest and shiniest thing that there is. Now, David didn't know what that was, but his heart was set on God. But we, living this side of the cross, we know what that amazing thing is. We've seen that thing of incredible beauty, haven't we? We've seen the real king come down. We've seen the real king live his life completely for his father. He obeyed every command. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul, and with all his strength. And he loved his neighbor. He lived a life that was beautiful to behold. And he is the only one who should have heard the father say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your father's happiness. But instead, he was betrayed by his friends. He was the victim of a kangaroo court. He was tortured and he was put to death on a cross. He was paying the price of our rebellion. He was paying the price of our corrupt hearts. You see, Jesus' heart was set completely and utterly on the Father and on the Father's love. But on the cross, even his Father turned his face away. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the end, Jesus' heart of love was pierced with a spear. And that was done for us. That was done for you and that was done for me. See, the crown that Jesus had, he put it down to go to the cross so that we might pick it up and be children of God. So that when the Father looks down, he doesn't see us and our dark hearts, but he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, perfect and spotless. And you see, when you see love like that, That's where the power comes from, to hunger and thirst after the one who came for you, to love you like that. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in this life and that all our actions are going to be great. I mean, like David, we too are going to make mistakes and we're going to go awry. But if we see what's been done for us, then we too will have a heart that will hunger and thirst after God and we'll long to be more and more like Jesus. So let me just close with a prayer. The the collect for today, which was just so apt, it says this. Almighty God, you alone can bring order to the unruly wills and passions of sinful humanity. Give your people grace so to love what you command and and to desire what you promise, that among the many changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.